Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from a very sunny Portland for a change. Uh, we also have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. I'm coming at you live from just the garage office. The purple room. Right. The purple room. Coming at you live yeah. from the purple room. Dan Shapir. Hey, from a sunny as usual Tel Aviv. Well, actually, now it's evening, so it's less sunny, but yeah, it was really sunny today. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. It's pretty sunny here, too. It's It's been kind of nice. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Annie Sullivan. Annie, do you want to introduce yourself and let us know uh, what kind of guru you are with all this stuff? Hi, everybody. I'm Annie Sullivan. I am a software engineer on the Chrome Web Platform team. And I lead the team that develops the core Web Vitals metrics. Those are performance and user experience metrics for websites. Awesome. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. And I know Dan invited you, so uh, maybe you two can tell us how you met and how that all worked out so we can get you on the show. <laughs> well, Annie's pretty much set the parameters for my uh, career over the past <laughs> two to three years, ever since Google came out with Core Vitals, which I think is celebrating its second birthday, more or less, right now. Then it's, it's really has been a dramatic has had a dramatic impact on how we all measure performance what we optimize for and whatnot and so i thought that it would be great again celebrating this second anniversary as it were to to speak with annie and learn about how all this thing came to be Ooh, story time annie i didn't know this was story time all right. So, I mean, like the history of web performance is super long. And right. uh, I've been working in this space for uh, a little bit over a decade, um, mostly internally at Google. I worked on Google Docs on making it faster and then on the web search front end. And then I came and worked on Google Chrome. And when I started on Chrome, I think we were a little bit, uh, it's a client application, right? So it gets installed on different computers and, and it, it, it was just a really different way of working than working on a website where, you know, you, you make a change and it goes live and you see everything instantly. And at first I, I worked on performance testing and tooling. And then I started collaborating with Tim Dresser, who was leading an effort at the time to kind of standardize how do we even decide what's fast. If you look at the benchmarks, the JavaScript benchmarks that all used to come out, there were like so many different metrics and so many different ways of measuring. And at one point with uh, the Octane benchmark, I'm not sure if people mm -hmm. remember that, like uh, there was a, a big problem where we started to do tests on like, like say a hundred real world websites. And 
we make a chain. They, if you look at the way that the V8 works, it's it's a bunch of different subsystems. You know, there's garbage collection, etc. And if you want to make Octane faster, you optimize one subsystem. But if you want to make those real websites faster, you optimize a different subsystem. Oh, okay. and we realized that these these kind of like lab benchmarks were were really actually making things ne- not necessarily better for users. They were just making it like a a number, <laughs> just improving a number that, that wasn't really measuring a real user experience. You kind of remind me of a funny story that I recall that some like two decades ago, there was this real mm-hmm. competition between uh, C++ compiler makers who could yeah. generate the fastest code from, you know, from the C++ code that was handed to them. And there were also a bunch of benchmarks. And and one of them was uh, the Siva Aristophanes, which is like this algorithm for calculating prime numbers. And uh, the test would be to take the C++ code and see which resulting executable could generate a certain number of, of prime numbers the fastest. And what some, what some of these compiler makers, what they did is that they would literally identify the test code and then instead of actually compiling it, would just output a hand-optimized bit of assembly language that, <laughs> that calculated <laughs> these numbers really, really quickly. Uh, so just, just so that they could win the benchmark. But obviously that's an extreme example, but I could totally, uh, what you're saying totally you know, makes sense to me. The fact that you can easily optimize the wrong thing if you're not looking at real world data, that what you're measuring often determines what it is that you optimize. Yeah, yeah it and that's a- exactly... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's it's all good. I'm running for school board, and it makes me think of the people who teach to the test. Can they actually do math? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my kid's in like his third standardized test this year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely hear you. But, but Dan, that's exactly what we were trying to do on Chrome. Go from having like these individualized benchmarks to really looking at like, what are real users seeing in the real world? You know, so, so basic things like, like how fast do web pages load? It turns out that, that there wasn't actually perfect metrics for that 10 years ago. We had, um, mm-hmm. This thing called Speed Index. Uh, and Speed Index is awesome. It, it looks at like the average time it takes to display pixels on the, the page when the page is loading. Um, the problem is that we couldn't get this metric for real users uh, because it, it's slow to complicate, uh, it's, it's slow to compute. And uh, but Pat Meenan, who who uh, created Web Page Test, he uh, he helped my team, who at the time we were working on resource prioritization. So I don't know how much you've all done uh, page load optimizations, but a, a big part of it is like which resources come in which order. And so our team was like, oh, maybe if we kind of tweak the resource prioritizations, we can make pages load faster. So Pat was like, great, you know, show me your changes and I'll run like like 100,000 pages on web page tests and we'll see like what changed between the, the old and the, the new version. Again, just to that. interrupt, just to interrupt you for a second because our listeners might not be familiar with it. Webpagetest.org is this amazing online tool that can analyze the performance of websites in what's known as a lab type scenario. It basically yeah. runs it in a virtual machine and looks at uh, CPU, the network traffic. It looks at the various resources that get downloaded and how the screen gets uh, rendered. And obviously, you can. Use it for your own website. In fact, you can run it from various locations around the world, which makes it possible to test how your site loads in those various locations on various devices, various types of browsers. It's an amazing tool. 
But beyond that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're also running web page tests on the websites, you know, automatically on various websites that Google collects performance information for. So it also makes it possible to analyze, not just, you know, manually analyzing a site, but like you said, you can look at thousands of websites and see impact of things that you're changing. Yeah, this is one of the early ways that we started looking at our changes. Now we usually run experiments uh, for real users where we just change this and see how it impacted. But we started with this large-scale lab test using web page test. Uh, I make a change to Chrome. How is before and after? What does web page say is different on, on about like 100,000 web pages? And uh, web page test gives you a couple of different metrics. It gives you this really cool speed index, which is like this visual thing that the user... Uh, can see, like when did they actually see the web page content? And it also gives you more traditional uh, page load metrics like the onload event. So the onload event wasn't actually window.onload. It wasn't actually meant to be a performance metric, right? It, it's like a measure for like, when might I want to inject some JavaScript, right? All of the sub resources on the pages are loaded, the, everything's parsed, etc. And we had thought that this was like a just a, a fine proxy for web page performance. But what Pat found out when he ran this test was that sometimes our changes would make onload faster and they would make speed index slower. And so mm. again, we see this thing where, where we've got a bit of an artificial metric and we can make changes so that make the real user experience worse when the, the metric gets better. And so the first thing that happened was the team set out to make metrics that really were able to measure uh, in the field for real users, or what are they seeing? And we hooked into the paint system and we made first contentful paint and largest contentful paint. And then we went back to the lab and we found that largest contentful paint is very highly correlated with speed index. So it's really, uh, this is a, a new metric that's just, it's very simple. What is the the largest image or text that paints to the screen? Uh, um, and that really does correlate visually with what, what the user sees as a page load. Uh, sorry, Dan. No, I, I was just, I'm really, I just that I'm really curious about largest contentful paint because it's it's a relative latecomer compared to to some of the other metrics uh, that you that some that you've mentioned and others. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that first paint and then first contentful paint predate largest contentful paint significantly. Uh, for a while, I recall uh, the Lighthouse lab test actually using uh, first meaningful paint, which is kind of problematic mm -hmm. because it's kind of subjective. But or at least a, a result of certain heuristics. But I'm I'm really curious about that because effectively you guys invented largest contentful paint. It didn't exist, as I recall, before Core Web Vitals was announced. I don't recall ever hearing of it anywhere else. Whereas you know those other metrics that you mentioned, like speed index, have been around for a long time. Um, so I'm wondering, how do you invent a new metric like that? Uh, so we didn't fully invent largest contentful paint. I think there's some pre-existing work that Steve, Stout Steve Souders and Speed Curve were doing where they're trying to do something very uh, similar, but they, they called it hero image. Like, can we automatically detect like what the hero of the page was? And so we were very inspired by that. But also, I think that there, there's a component of it about like what it that that's what's possible to measure, right? With speed index, kind of a, a big of the a big innovation that led to speed index was like web page tests can take a video of the web page. And then if you have a video of the web page, you, you can look at the pixels, pixel by pixel. So now it's possible to have speed index. And a very similar thing happened with largest contentful paint where we worked together with the team that actually manages uh, painting in, in Chrome's rendering pipeline. 
And they were able to tell us image by image, text piece by text piece, what's painting when in a way that's standardizable. And that was that's actually like a pretty new thing that, that we had not been able to do before. And so that that's why all of a sudden we were able to make this metric when it wasn't possible before. I think it is worth noting, by the way, that while first Contentful Paint is now measurable, let's say, also in WebKit and also maybe in, in uh, Firefox, I don't recall off the top of my head, a largest Contentful Paint currently is only measurable on Chromium-based browsers. So it's only really available in Chrome, Edge, and so forth. Uh, the other, uh, I think that currently Apple or the WebKit people don't really intend to implement it as far as I recall. Or at least they're saying that they have issues with it or something like that. Uh, Yeah, currently, uh, their latest feedback was that they they would prefer something where, you know, you could measure image by image, which is element timing. So I'd love to to sync up with them on that again, because you could calculate LCP from element timing. But so far, they haven't uh, expressed interest in implementing But Mozilla is prototyping LCP right now. So we're really, really excited about having it in a second browser and getting that feedback and hardening that metric up. Cool. That would be awesome. So you said that basically uh, you guys kind of worked with the people who were responsible for the rendering pipeline and throwing ideas around. And that's how uh, LCP came to be and influenced by Speed Index, as it were. Mm-hmm. And influenced by, by Speed Curve as well, and the, the work uh, that Steve Souders did on Hero Elements. And, and once you've had this idea, how did you actually verify that it, it's worthwhile, that it actually measures something that's worth measuring? Yeah, so validating the metrics takes a really long time, and that's where I spend a lot of my time day to day. The first thing we do is we go to the lab and we measure a bunch of web pages. So at first, we didn't necessarily know that we were going to do largest contentful paint. We kind of had four things that we were going to try. The largest text paint, the largest image paint, the last text paint, uh, and then the last image paint. And we uh, work with the paint team to be able to kind of like piece together when did each of these things happen in a Chrome trace. If if you're not familiar with Chrome tracing, it's like a performance debugging system in Chrome where we can just output a bunch of things. And then a a lab tool can come along and read that and reconstruct some things about what might have happened. So we took like, you know, I started with with about 10,000 pages in our lab debugging system, output when all these different things are happening I'd also output a film strip. And we looked at like, first off, like, are they even different? When are they different? Why are they different? And kind of looked at the film strips to, to see, you know, when are they the same? Does the page look like it loaded there? And then when are they different? Which one looks better and why? And from there, we got more confident that largest text or image paint would probably be the thing that we wanted as opposed to individually splitting out like text versus images or having like just the last paint. So that made us really confident in the idea of largest contentful paint. And then we implemented it in Chrome in our monitoring system and added what we call URL key metrics logging. That's the thing that logs to Crux. But we can see what were the the LCPs of various pages. And then we can go and, and look at outliers or look at pages where, where metrics are different. That's one of the things that, that helps us a lot in understanding when a metric might not be working right. We look at, we have some ideas about what we might expect. So like, for example, we know Wikipedia is really fast. 
And then we go and we look up what, what's the LCP of Wikipedia, and we would expect it to be lower than like the X- LCPs of sites that we think are slow. Or we compare it to onload. We did a correlation analysis between LCP and FCP speed index and onload. And it's much more correlated to speed index than to the the other metrics. So that also gave us some confidence that people really like speed index. They like how it is is showing you that visual indicator of the page loading. It's got nearly a decade of feedback. And and when we're seeing that it's it's more correlated with that than with other metrics, which we know have have some edge cases that don't work out well, that that was really exciting to see too. So two comments. First of all, you, you mentioned the term crux which I don't know if we mentioned before, just to to tell our listeners that we had a whole episode with Rick Viscomi, who effectively manages Crux, I think, at Google or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Crux is this cloud-based database into which you collect performance data from Chrome sessions out in the wild, right? As I recall... Like if most, like if you've enabled browser history sync and some other things, and don't enable some other things, then then uh, you guys collect anonymous performance data from those sessions and put it into this Crux database, where you obviously have access to it. But amazingly, you also give everybody else access to it, at least for read. Obviously, not for write, and also in a slightly restricted way for privacy reasons. But uh, other other than that, it's pretty free access, or at least if you're running BigQuery, you need to pay for the queries, but not for the data itself. I had a question just to kind of back up onto this a little bit, because we're talking about Crux and how that kind of collects some of this data so that you can get a feel for, hey, this, this website be, performs well, this site doesn't perform well. Or maybe this site performs well and this site performs better. You said that you built the Core Web Vitals, you built Last Contentful Paint into Chrome, and now they're building it into Firefox. Is is that the same thing? Is that building the reporting in for that, the measurement in for that? Or is, That's a good question. Yeah. And, uh, and so for Firefox, say, what does it mean for them? So Yeah, so when we say Largest Contentful Paint, we specifically mean uh, the specification. In this case, it is a, a web standard in the Web Performance Working Group called largest contentful paint and it actually specifies like like uh, which paint is the largest contentful how do we uh, mm-hmm. measure it and it goes over those details and it's an api uh which means that like you can have a performance observer in your javascript that uh listens to it'll tell you when the largest contentful paint is and then you can go and send it to your your run provider or your analytics so firefox and, and mozilla are implementing that api okay and so so when you say they're implementing that API, I mean, what does that do for me? Is it just does it just make me aware that it's being collected somehow, or is that something that I can go look at? Or I think you would have it, to collect it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, go ahead, Dan. No, I'm I'm exactly what you were starting to say, and I apologize for barging in. But as a person who, as a user of these of these APIs, and you need to make an important distinction between. Google who are collecting this information directly from Chrome for Mm -hmm. any website, again, assuming that you as the user have not uh, opted out of this process, then Google basically collects this data anonymously for any website that you visit versus you deciding that you want to collect this data yourself for your own website. So Google collects all this information. And you can look at the information that Google collects, and we can talk about some of the caveats mm-hmm. that are associated with that. But if you want to have 
more control over the data that you're collecting, as it were, you can either purchase and integrate a third-party solution from Speedcurve, from Akamai, from uh, Sentry. There are like a whole bunch of providers right. uh, out there. And then you put it in your own website, you start collecting data for your own website. And that's distinct from the data that Google collects. Now, previously, those APIs were only available in Chromium-based browsers. So if you, let's say, integrated Speedcurve into your website, you they could get collect data, performance data from sessions on Chrome, but they could not collect all the same data from sessions on Firefox. Well, if Firefox does implement these APIs, then they would be able to collect this information for Firefox as well. But it doesn't mean that Firefox will start sending their own data into the Google database. Well, I mean, they might decide to, I don't know, but it doesn't it, it doesn't automatically happen. So I guess my question, I think you kind of answered it, but I want to just clarify this and you can just tell me if I'm right or wrong. But what effectively what you're saying is that, is that this is an API that is callable in JavaScript or, you know, through some other mechanism within the browsers. So if I'm running, Raygun is our sponsor here, similar to Sentry or whatever, those Sentry sponsored in the past. Anyway, I think a lot of them have implemented these Core Web Vitals metrics. And so what they do is when they're running on the page, they they make the call to the API in Chrome and say, hey, it loaded the page again. Give me the, core, you know, give me the last contentful paint for this guy. And then they're aggregating that where I can see it just as Chrome is doing the same thing for Google so that they can rank my page. Yep. Uh, And they may have additional data about your page that will help you more. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I I was trying to figure out what that meant, but that that makes a lot of sense because then I can go get a tool that can aggregate the data as my page loads on different phones, computers, or tablets, or what have you, and then come back and say, you know, you could really reduce this by making an image smaller or by, you know, doing these couple of optimizations. And that's not information I'm going to get from Google. So, Annie, you mentioned that Firefox is implementing this. What about other browsers? I know, for instance, like Edge is edgy of, you know, Chromium. So does that mean it's in there? And what about like, you know, Safari or Opera or some of the other, you know, many browsers that are out there? Yeah, so as far as I know, it's it's available in all Chromium-based browsers, which would be like Edge, Brave, Opera, Chrome. Uh, Safari has uh, not, they, they have not made a commitment to, to implement mm-hmm. Largest Contentful Paint there. Uh, so if you're interested, the, you could give feedback directly to the WebKit team to see if, if they'd be willing to do that is uh, the best advice I can give. Well, uh, Safari I, seems to be the IE6 of the day anymore from, oh, from uh, <laughs> I've heard that, I've seen that thrown around in a lot of different places. So I, I was just curious to see what other browsers might be implementing this as well. I would also mention that it's worth noting that different some of the issues have to do with uh, also with rendering strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, Firefox, not Firefox, sorry, WebKit, Safari, recently implemented First Contentful Paint. A friend of the show, Noam Ozenthal, who was our guest uh, on several occasions, was actually the person who contributed the code into WebKit that added this capability, and then Apple approved this uh, this change. But one of the issues is that the first paint or first contentful paint can actually happen for the same page. could happen at different times on Safari, on WebKit, and on Chrome using Blink. 
because they have like d- different strategies deciding how long to hold on to the uh, con- to the image of the previous page before rendering the content uh, of the of the new page like what is the threshold to erase the previous view and start rendering the the new view and there was a concern that because of these different strategies one browser might seem to have better performance than another browser even though that might not really be the case yeah i, I think that the biggest difference uh, is called it, uh, i think paint holding is the the term for for that and the biggest difference is in the first paint more so than the first contentful paint. And so WebKit decided not to implement uh, the first paint metric because for them, first paint and first contentful paint are always the same. Where there's some some situations where Chrome like uh, would paint like a skeleton full of divs, uh, for example, whereas WebKit might hold that paint until there's some text to display as well, for, for example. So I've, I've noticed a lot of these modern pages, they do this... It's it's almost like watching one of those old progressive JPEGs load from the 90s where they load a bunch of text blocks and then they load some content and they load some more content. It just feels like websites are getting really slow. But what is is that for performance hacks? Is that just to look goofy? Do you know anything about that? You, you know what I'm talking about where they, they load a skeleton page that's got no content and then... Yeah, so, so I have seen them loading no content skeletons. And I, I think it's... The, the first thing I'll say, I think Dan and I talked about this a little bit in another context, is that there isn't a whole lot of user experience research about you have some end state that the page wants to be in and like how many intermediate states are good. Should it be very progressive and slowly load or should it all snap in? And so I think that that's something that we're hoping to to get more user experience research on and sponsor. But currently, like like it, we don't necessarily know. But I, I do know that a lot of the companies that are doing these sorts of skeletons, they do have like pretty advanced product teams and pretty advanced metrics. And so, like uh, when I, I see these, at least in like the the larger products, I'm I'm pretty sure that there's some reason that they're doing it, right? That their metrics look better when they have a skeleton versus don't. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what happens with progress indicators or spinners. Like, yeah. is it better to have a spinner? or better to have nothing at all in that area. And obviously, the best thing to do would be to not need a spinner and just load the content more quickly. Uh, but but given that it is what it is, you need to decide between showing nothing and showing a spinner, and it's not always clear which is better. Yeah, it, it does seem that we want to show something, right? But how many somethings and how progressive they should be, there's a lot of debate, and it, it's I think it's very unclear. Yeah, it just seems strange to me because it's basically, I, it almost seems like a waste, right? Like, why load an image three times? Why load a website three times? Why not just load it once faster? Especially when, I, it just seems strange to me. you got a site like Twitter. I'm not sure if this is one of the ones that does it or not, but there's, there's sites like this that do these skeleton loads, and they, they put the placeholder there with all these you know blocks and images and everything, and then it loads up with text afterwards. Why? Can, uh, by can the we not way, just get the text? It's just text. By, by the way, the one that I that immediately springs to my mind is YouTube, where when you load YouTube, especially on slower connection, you get like this grid of gray boxes, which then get replaced by the various poster images and the text that's associated with the various videos. Yeah, that makes a little bit more sense in the in, in terms of you're dealing with a grid of images rather than a grid of text. But Well, I remember, I think part of the reason, too, and this is something I've had to work 
with on large sites or to work on on larger sites isn't so much the performance as it is you're trying to improve the visual performance. So you don't want a whole bunch of jank for lack of a, I don't know if that's a technical term or not, but <laughs> where you've got images going to come in here. So there's no placeholder. So then the image comes in and pushes the page down and around and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So in my experience, it's been more of a, a visual performance so that the user knows something's loading and they're not sitting here refreshed, refreshed, just delaying their page load even more. So that has, that's sort of, in my mind, that's sort of an indirect performance. And know, finally, letting, you're informing your, your users that, yeah, something's really coming. It's coming. <laughs> it might be coming fast, but it's coming. <laughs> and funnily enough, there's a core vital metric for that as well, which is CLS, but <laughs> about that visual jank. But but before we get to that one, I wanted to ask you, Annie, about another thing related to LCP. So mm-hmm. actually two things. One is there is something that's kind of problematic for me with LCP, especially when I contrast it with FCP, which is the first Contentful Paint. So the, the problem with the largest Contentful Paint is like, how do you know? Uh, how do you know that in, in like, I don't know, a third of a second, an, an even larger paint won't happen? When do you stop is kind of like the, the one of the big questions. Like, who's the last in line? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there's somebody after me. Yeah, so we do have that specified in the the largest contentful paint specification. Uh, we wait until like if the user doesn't scroll or doesn't input into the page, then we we just wait for the largest. And ideally, like when you're sending a, a ping back to a Roman analytics provider, like the largest contentful paint has occurred, you actually wait until the end, right? Like after after the user inputs or scrolls, or after they unload as they're navigating away from the page. Uh, so that that's how the algorithm actually works. In practice, it's very unusual past a, a few seconds in for uh, a, a larger image to actually show up. And then I, I think you may be about to ask the question, like, what if like a big image is loading while they click? We actually don't count that, that edge case uh, for the reason that like we're worried that encouraging users to interact faster would, uh, would reduce the metric. So if it's clear that like the content is still loading, while they're interacting, uh, that that page load doesn't count for LCP. Why did you decide to stop on user interactions? Because it could be really difficult as the user is scrolling down. You, you then right, you can have larger, more content constantly coming in, right? Like if you're scrolling down your Facebook feed, you could end up with the largest image half an hour in. But that that doesn't happen if you wait. You know, because it's supposed to be a page loading metric, not not a interaction focus metric. So I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD. Why did you start Raygun? You know, I I started Raygun. It was actually our 11th product that we built. So, you know, if you're a fellow software engineer thinking you want to build something and build a business, this was the 11th try, right? And we built it because way back when I was writing more code for customers, I used to instrument my code to send an email to myself when something went wrong. And it would let me kind of get in front of the issue before the customer complained. And so we built a a whole product called Raygun for crash reporting initially. Uh, It expanded out into other areas, but it was really just building a full solution to what I'd been doing years earlier to try and build better software. I love that. Just scratching your own itch. It makes a ton of sense. And, And I do that too with some of the stuff that I'm doing, either with podcasting or programming. Yeah, absolutely. The The most awkward thing was when we actually instrumented some of those prior 11 products. And that's when we realized that about 1% of users will ever actually report an issue. And you go, oh, we might have been a lot more successful earlier if we'd known that. <laughs> so that's kind of the whole value prop of Raygun. Yep, absolutely. 
And it, it makes sense just to put it in there. So folks, if you're looking to try something like this, that'll tell you what your problems are, go check out raygun.com and get a free trial. Another way that I kind of explain it, but I don't know if that's uh, something that you even considered. So maybe it's just <laughs> something that I thought of was that uh, Largest Contentful Paint kind of strives to measure when a visitor perceives the page as loaded, visually at least. Yeah. And if the user has decided to start in- interacting with it, then it is a sort of an indication that it's sufficiently loaded from their perspective. And consequently, whatever was the the largest contentful paint up to that point is kind of like good enough. But I don't know if that's uh, that was one of your considerations. So if all the content is loaded, you start interacting, then, then we call it good enough. Only like, like it's definitely less than 5% of pages where, you know, the content is loading while they're interacting and we discount it. But but we're not quite sure how what the best way thing to do is in those cases. I feel like that's a lot more than 5%. That seems like a lot of the web is loading while you're thinking you can click and then nothing's happening and you got to refresh. Uh, I mean, if, if you got to refresh, like those pages are uh, abandoned, but it, it is not that many pages that have a first contentful paint and then no largest contentful paint because of an interaction. It's kind of interesting. It seems like maybe users have been trained not to interact with pages. Uh, <laughs> I think Things Canada have gotten has... so bad. We don't wait for the loading spinner. We don't wait for the thing to show mm-hmm. up. We just sit and we just wait. <laughs> I think that that actually might be part of the reason that first input delay, which we haven't really touched on, is the last core, core vital that we're talking about uh, has such good scores, is that the people do seem to wait before they interact with the page. Before we get to that one, I would li- actually like to talk about CLS or uh, cumulative layout shift. Yeah. And that's the one that kind of goes to that scenario that Steve mentioned where you have jank as things kind of move around. I think we've everybody has experienced a situation where we're reading some news article and then an ad uh, gets loaded and pushes everything down and all of a sudden we lose our spot and it's really annoying. So so that's the thing that get, gets measured in CLS. And I'm really curious about how that metric came to be because in a lot of ways, it's not really measuring performance. It's measuring mm-hmm. experience. And yet you've kind of put it into this box of perf- that, you know, that performance metrics. So how, how did this kind of metric occur to you guys, your people? So first off, the, the core web vitals, I mean, they're not like the full complete experience of the web page yet, but we're aiming to make them more and more focused around the whole user experience and not just performance. But the idea behind the metrics is that they're kind of like a three-legged stool. We were worried, right? Like somebody, you can make your largest content pool paint very fast by putting, like delaying all the scripts and, and making it interactive very slow. Or you can make it fast by like kind of the worst case of what AJ is talking about, where like content is like slowly appearing in little by little and it, it's really jarring. And so we thought if we had these three metrics, first, the largest contentful paint, how fast is the page load? And then the first input delay, like how, how interactable is it? How interactive is it during load? And then lastly, cumulative layout shift, like how much are things moving around? that those metrics would really balance each other and and overall show a good user experience. Um, but it was really exciting to work on cumulative layout shift because it, it really, I think, is one of the first kind of metrics that isn't performance-focused, that's more user experience-focused. And also, it doesn't actually end at page load. I mean, with LCP, 
you like you said, it, it mm-hmm. usually happens fairly soon after the page finished loading, you know, at a certain point in time. And FID, which we'll get to, is the first input delay. So obviously, it's the, just the first time that the person interacts with the page. But CLS actually, well, initially, it actually did uh, accumulate throughout the life, the entire lifetime of the page. Now, you've kind of changed that about a year ago, I believe. Yeah. But So it's not just about the loading experience. It's about something that could theoretically happen fairly late in the lifetime of the page after it's really totally done loading. So could you talk about that? Yeah. So the the change that we made was instead of accumulating through like the entire time the page is open, even if it's open for an hour or hour and a half, we just take the worst burst of layout shifts that occur uh, while the user is browsing. Uh, So we still do like measure cumulative layout shift over the whole time the person is on the page. And there's some really bad experiences that we catch. Uh, One of those is like you're scrolling and the images don't have the width and height set. And they so they pop in and you you can't feel uh, figure out where you were. Right. Like you're scrolling and then all of a sudden you're lost. So it captures that really frustrating experience. One other experience we realized was really frustrating is uh, single-page app navigation. Sometimes they're beautiful and perfect, and they all fit in the the skeleton just right. But sometimes, not only do they have a lot of layout shift, but because you can click like in the middle of the page or in the bottom of the page, the layout just can be kind of like a star outward from that click. And that's uh, users find that very, very jarring as well, that, that the layout shifts might happen in many directions. What, what do you uh, mean so by a star? Uh, so like normally, like when you're browsing, the content kind of shifts downward. But if you click like in the middle of the page and it does a single page app transition, sometimes some content shifts up, some content shifts sideways, and some content shifts down. And it's very jarring when that happens. It, it feels weird. Basically, single page applications, you know, in an effort to create what they might consider to be a better transition effect and utilize the fact that they are actually staying technically within the same page, they reuse visual components components from one from the from the quote unquote previous page to the quote unquote new page but then they have to kind of shift them around and rearrange them if that the layout of the page has changed so things get c- could get pushed in in various directions but again so with largest contentful paint like you said it was kind of like uh, the stepchild of first contentful paint and speed index where you mm-hmm. kind of merge them together and that's what you ended up with and it's a metric that actually measures time which is a b- really natural thing with cumulative layout shift it can be even kind of technically challenging to explain what it actually even measures because it's kind of like the product of the impacted area and the and the the rate of of movement and the you know ratio of movement sorry and it's like this unitless number and it's and I know a lot of people who are like kind of struggling to to even figure out what it is or even know what the limits are like obviously it could be as low as zero but like what's the highest possible value it's it's not obvious so so you know it, it seems kind of like really out there like how like how did you guys come up with this yeah uh, so first off we the goal was to come up with something where we didn't like kind of incentivize people to to load their pages really fast but I have content kind of sliding in from everywhere and have it be like a confusing experience. So we were thinking about like ways that we could make that happen. 
And again, we had this kind of new innovation where we could like hook into what the paint system is seeing and when it's painting content. Uh, and then know when content is unexpectedly moving around. But as you said, it, it can be a little bit complicated to translate like the paint system sees boxes, right? Boxes are, are moving unexpectedly to something that the developer can understand. So what we did was we took uh, each time a box kind of shifts unexpectedly, like how much of the viewport is affected and how, how far did the box shift? So like the limit, ideally the limit for CLS would be zero, but the, the limit we set is about like 10% of the page moving, point one. Now, one interesting thing that I find with CLS is that to a certain extent, and I might be totally off on this, it feels like you're kind of fighting against the way the web was initially designed to work. Like one of the salient aspects or defining aspects of the uh, the web, at least as it began as a document display system, is that content flows. You don't need to specify the initial size of the image. When it downloads, the intrinsic size determines the final size, and it pushes content aside so that stuff doesn't overlap, and you can properly read the content of whatever document you're viewing. And you're kind of saying, no, this isn't good. You need to specify in advance exactly what size everything will be. It's kind of like saying, like, you should uh, position absolute everything. (laughs) And I'm intentionally being, you know, extreme here. But that kind of, to an extent, feels like what it is that you're saying. Or down with... uh, just use the grid layout. All the other layouts are not so good anymore. That, that kind of how it feels to an extent with CLS, because otherwise you end up with potentially poor CLS scores. I'm just going to use tables. <laughs> just use tables. Uh, tables do work too, but I think you can use the dynamic, dynamic layout system. It's just that we wanted you to specify, like, you're going to send an image down. How big is that image, right? And I think that's a lot of the reality of modern web development is ideally you do kind of think about what are the dimensions of that image? What is it going to look like on different screens? How big would it be displayed? Uh, Should you be using a source set or things like that? So for images and for other like dynamic content, like uh, just specifying a size for for the, the dynamic parts. But the browser still does quite a bit of layout. So basically, you're saying the web today is really different than what it was back in the late 90s. <laughs> it is quite different, yeah. So as I said, you made a big change in the way that CLS gets computed about a year ago. And I think that was the biggest change so far that you've made to Core Web Vitals since they were introduced. Can you speak a little about that? Like, How did you decide to make the change? What was the change that you made? And how did you verify that the change you made was actually a good one? As I re- even recall, you were also considering like different strategies and you know, like you came up with the mm-hmm. winner. Yeah. So when we first launched CLS, we, we were really focused on like kind of like numerically understanding the web. And when we looked at the data overall, if you look at like kind of the time that's spent on a web page, overall, the fact that the CLS basically you have like content that shifts around. So individual pieces of content shifting. We add those all up into a cumulative score. So the, the cumulative sum of like all the content that shifted. And, and numerically, the time that people spent on page didn't really impact the score overall. But when we released the metric, we got a lot of feedback from web developers where in their specific situation, it was uh, a lot of tiny shifts were impacting their score in a negative way. Uh, there was some implementations of infinite scrollers that we found 
were negatively affected and some single page apps that were open for a very long time that were negatively affected. And what we realized is that we have to look at the qualitative data and not just the quantitative data when we're making uh, a decision about a metric. If we're we're basically telling developers there's, there's no good solution there, <laughs> like don't use an infinite scroller or don't have your page open too long for, for your specific page, it's, it's not good enough. So we decided that, that it was important to, to take that developer feedback and to change the metric into something that uh, for all pages, it could be open a very long time and the metric wouldn't be affected. And so then we set out on how to do that. And we thought of like a lot of different ways. Maybe it should be the average layout shift. Maybe it should be like a sliding window or what we ended up using was a session window that kind of expands around a bubble of layout shifts because layout shifts kind of happen in multiple frames sometimes. Uh, A lot of the times you'll have like a burst of layout shifts in several frames in a row. As we wanted to capture that, we looked at like different windowing approaches to that. We looked at average. We looked at like just looking at the worst individual layout shift. And what we did is first we we went back to our idea of doing a lab study. We uh, recorded a bunch of user experiences that either we'd seen or that, that people had given us feedback about. Single page app interactions, scrolling, page loads with various amounts of layout shift in them. And so we recorded these interactions in Chrome. We took a video of them. And then we also use our Chrome tracing to kind of take all of the data that we had about the individual layout shifts for these user experiences. We asked about 50 different users to internally at Google, but not people that were on our team to rank the user experiences and say like, like what they thought were best and worst. And then we, we came up with a bunch of different kind of competing ways to, to summarize these layout shifts. So should it be the average? Should it be the session window? How big should the session window be? Right? Like, so we took, we ended up with like a 150 or so kind of strategies that, that we uh, made up by permutating all these different, you know, how long is a session window? What type of window is it? Are we using the average or using the maximum, et cetera? And when we kind of put the, the user study data together with the, the different approaches, uh, there were a couple of things that, that kind of came to the top. One was like kind of looking at a group of bad layout shifts together. So some kind of bubble of bad layout shifts, the the strategies that measured that really correlated with how people felt about the user experience. The one that that did not go well was the average layout shifts where we saw like tiny layout shifts would uh, kind of wash out the bad experience. Um, So we we came up with a a couple of of different the variations on that like bubble of bad layout shifts, and we implemented them in Chrome's logging. And then we compared them like on real user data. Like, like if we ranked all the websites by each metric, which ones were most different and why? And, and that's how we came up with the idea of a, a session window that is, it has up to one second gap. So like if you have a bunch of layout shifts and then like they stop, if they stop for a second, that's your window. And it, it kind of, we, the window bubbles around a series of, of uh, layout shifts up to five seconds. I have to say that in the excellent uh, Google website, the web.dev website, you've got amazing graphics that really illustrate all these concepts. That You're explaining them amazingly well, but again, the limitations of, of this medium. So if somebody yeah. is a more visual person, they can find excellent examples over at web.dev. Yeah, I worked really hard on those graphics. (laughs) (laughs) No, they are excellent. I do have to mention that one of the reasons that people were so engaged 
with with core vitals like from day one and like all the feedback that you got about CLS like why people were upset that their website was getting a a poor CLS score than they thought they deserved was the fact that core vitals were it was announced that they are a, a ranking signal into Google search I know that uh, you people at Google are really secretive of talking about or about the search but can you maybe tell us a little bit about how this came to be, that Core Web Vitals became a ranking signal into the Google search engine? Yeah, so, so first I'll, I'll just say that like it, it's not even that it's secretive outside of Google. It's also secretive inside of Google in that search is its own organization. And most of the people that you talk to about Core Web Vitals are actually on the Chrome team developing the metrics. And we don't actually have any visibility into how search ranking works other than what's been talked about publicly. But I can talk a bit about how the decision was made. A couple of years ago, there was a search ranking change where uh, they just told people we're going to include site performance in uh, your ranking. And as soon as that announcement was made, all of the site performance numbers, like the 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 LCP, the FCP, like numbers of people didn't even know how to compute at that point, they all went tumbling down. The performance on the web got way better, not just after the ranking changes enforced, but when, when they told people that we're going to do this. And that was really exciting. But when we looked at it, we said, like, it's, it's kind of unfair, right? We didn't tell people how we were going to measure performance. We didn't, like, we didn't do anything but say, like, we're going to include performance in your search ranking. And so we thought that if we made, like, open standard metrics and we were really clear about how it's measured and we integrated them into our tooling and we, we tried to keep it clear, like, just three simple metrics that, that maybe that would help the ecosystem improve in in like a more sustainable way. And so that was kind of the idea for Core Web Vitals. So question for you, just speaking as a user, I understand that if I'm searching the web, people tend to get impatient in terms of performance. You know, there's legendary quotes that I've heard bandied around about how Amazon has figured out that so much delay will cost them billion dollars in money because people are just strictly impatient. And so I'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate here. I'm gonna take on my AJ role. And AJ got a big smile there. So if I'm searching the web for some data and I find a website and there's a website out there that has the data that I'm looking for, I couldn't care less if it's a few seconds slower, if it has the data that I'm looking for, okay? And so I'm trying to understand the reasoning for including performance in page ranking when it comes to looking for content. And to me, that it sounds sort of like a top-down forcing thing sort of along the lines of the way our current administration is trying to force everybody into electric vehicles and away from fossil fuels because they've determined it's better for everybody. And so when you're looking at data and I want to find some data, some information, whether it's on a disease, on web development, whatever the topic can be, my concern is that my site has the data, not so much the performance. So I'm trying to understand the logic in including performance in page ranking when it comes to search. So I think that the important thing to think about here is that there's many factors which go into search ranking, and Core Vitals are one of those factors. Most of the time, there's multiple sites that can give you the information you need, and you want it quickly. And so that's why it's it available as a ranking factor. But obviously, like About Blank is the fastest page, and, and that's never going to come up in your search results because it doesn't have a content you need. That, that's not the only factor. I can even give uh, an, like a reverse example, I guess, or a, like the, the fact that if you search for news, 
CNN will come up as like, I think, the, the second place, right, after Google News. Surprise, surprise. And that's despite the fact that the CNN website is atrociously slow. It has terrible scores. And But like you said, people, when they search for news, they care about the news and they expect to see CNN and they expect to get at the content that CNN has. And that's, that's the reason that CNN ranks so high, even though their performance is pretty poor. So, so like Annie said, it's just one consideration. But I think you would agree that uh, if there are two websites that have essentially, let's say, the same information that you're looking for, and one of them will load this information in, let's say, a half a second, and the other one will load this the same information in five seconds, I think that you would prefer the faster one. And at the end of the day, the way that Google sees it in, with search, I think, is that the customer is not the websites, it's the user. They're trying to please the user. They're trying to give the user the experience that the, the user would enjoy. And, and part of that is how quickly the system, as it were, responds to a click on the Google search results. Yeah. So I know you said, Annie, you said you really, you know, search is sort of a, a walled enclosure from a Google standpoint from everybody else that, you know, like to keep their proprietary stuff proprietary. Do you have any inclination in terms of where Cool Web Vitals ranks in, in the big bucket of criteria that determines when a page ranks high in search? You know, is it like, for example, oh, it's only 2% as compared to 20% or, you know, something along the line. Do they give you any indications of, of the priority of, of Core Web Vitals in the overall search algorithm? Uh, no, um, my guess is that the overall search algorithm is very context specific and and like kind of not that simple. Oh, I'm sure it's complex. We've <laughs> we've who's the the DevRel we've talked to before, Dan? Uh, Martin um, Split, I think it was. Yes, Martin Split. Yeah, that was mind numbing. Just listening, <laughs> not mind numbing, but dizzying, shall we say, listening <laughs> to the complexities of that. It ended up as two episodes. <laughs> and how that works? It ended up as being yes, two it did. being two episodes because the conversation just ran so long because there was just so much information. Yep. But yeah, it was an awesome yeah. conversation, and it, it's really mind boggling how complex and sophisticated uh, this uh, the system is. But I'm still curious. So this idea of using Core Web Vitals, is this as part of the search ranking instead of whatever arbitrary mechanism existed before? Is that kind of like an initiative that came from the Chrome people or came from the search people, if you can say? I'd say that the, the Chrome people were really excited about the idea and, and talked to search people about, you know, like, uh, you know, th this is a way we think we can make it better. And the final metric, which I'm giving like a spoiler, will actually have an, an upcoming episode where you join us again to talk about that in a lot more detail and, and how you're thinking about changing it. But if you can just like briefly explain what the, that final first input delay metric is that, that's also currently a part of Core Vitals. Yeah, so first input delay measures the, the amount of time. Uh, so I, I don't know if people are familiar, but main thread blocking JavaScript is like a really huge problem in web performance. Uh, we, we By default, everything runs on the main thread, and that means that the user interface is going to be blocked until all this stuff runs. And so first input delay measures the time from when the user first interacts until the the event handlers are able to run. So it's a measure of main thread blocking time. But there are some problems with it. Uh, 
First off, uh, it's had like significant improvements actually since the Core Web Vitals were launched. Uh, frameworks made some changes around how they handle user inputs. They started using the request idle callback API to to basically like yield to user input immediately. And Chrome also made some changes uh, when a user input occurs. Uh, we no longer look as aggressive, wait as aggressively for double tap delay. So the pass rates for first input delay have gone from like 83%, I think, to about like 97%. So at this point, first input delay isn't really measuring main thread blocking time as well as it could be. And so our team is working on a bunch of improvements to to really uh, measure better how uh, user interaction with, with the page uh, is going because it, there's still problems with it. Yeah, I think that first input delay is a great example of how a metric succeeds to such an extent that it effectively becomes irrelevant. <laughs> because I, like you said, once we've gotten to the point where like the aggregated average, I think, for all websites is something like 93%, then effectively it's like, you know, it's like if if a school teacher gives an exam and all the kids ace it, then what are they actually even testing? Yeah. So, yeah. So like you, so as you said, like you guys are working on a new metric. And like I said, uh, we will have you over again in a couple of weeks with the members of your team to to actually talk about uh, this these new metrics that you're looking at that might uh, replace first input delay. And, uh, and I think it's really great that you're updating and enhancing core web vitals as as you go along, both based on the things that you learn from looking at the results and as a result of, of what's actually happening out there as our industry reacts to the core web vitals that, that you've put out. And again, from my own perspective, when you released core web vitals and when you made it official, and we had something to optimize for. So at that time, I was at Wix. It really changed the way that we went about uh, optimizing, identifying performance issues and, and addressing them and being able to get all the team up to speed on what it is that we're aiming for. It, it really made a huge difference for us. Awesome. That's exactly what we hope would happen. On the other hand, I do have to say that we still have a lot of work ahead of us because while I'm looking at the Crux data, and it, it the, the numbers are, are still not that great. I mean, even with everybody effectively passing uh, the FID, so you're really only measuring us on two of the, uh, like the, the stool really has two legs now <laughs> rather than three. And, and despite that fact, when I look at, uh, at like the general data for all websites in the Crux database across the globe, uh, only like 40% of websites actually get a passing grade for all, for all the core web vitals, which I think is still, you know, not really not where we want to be. Yeah, we and definitely have a lot to work. Half of ahead. that 40% is probably because they're from the 90s and they're just loading text like you said before. Well, the thing is, a lot of the sites from the 90s perform really, really well because they just don't try to do so many things. So I, I do think we have a long way to go, and I'm really excited to just keep going with it. Yeah, I would think those older sites would be really quick because they're just straight HTML and CSS and maybe a little bit of JavaScript. Uh, you know but they say an image is worth a thousand tables. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing, the thing that I think is interesting is that when it comes down to these kinds of metrics or you know these kinds of measurements or things like that they're a never going to be perfect and b 
yeah, people are going to find ways around them. We kind of talked about that with the uh, compiler examples and stuff like that. People are going to find a way to kind of master those particular things. But the flip side is, is that as we start looking at these and measuring these and evaluating how they affect uh, web performance for the users and things like that, then we can start moving the the process along and saying, oh, well, what about this? And so we can start adding things to it as we go and making those measures more along the lines of what we want them to be so that we're evaluating that things are moving in the right direction. And so as far as any of this goes, I do like the fact that even if it's not perfect, it's it's getting us closer to the things that we care about. So I have one more question. Do you have any idea when it comes to, for example, things that are rendered with say WordPress or you know old style server side rendering versus new style server side rendering versus client side rendering what tends to for dynamic applications what what tends to actually perform best I think it gets really complicated because uh, a lot of the techniques, like, like when you look at, you can look at like uh, HTTP archive data and do a ton of analysis on 8 million sites. And, and what we see uh, the most of all is that like just having too much stuff on your site, that uh, pulling in every single library, yanking all the third parties, like that, that is the thing that causes the most problems. I, I do think that server side rendering in general is faster. But I, I think that there's a lot of things that can go wrong on a case-by-case basis that kind of overwhelm the the higher-level architectural advice. I'd, I'd be really hear, curious to see what Dan says. He has a lot of more on-the-ground experience. Yeah, I would add, and we probably don't have enough time to talk about it this time because I think we're running towards the end of our show, but it's also a great topic we of are. conversation, is the fact that Core Web Vitals, as they are specified today, are not ideal for single-page applications because they really identify as a starting point only hard navigations and not the soft navigations that are associated with page transitions in in single-page applications. And and that really impacts the whole game. So, so for example, it it tends to give an advantage to websites that are implemented as multi-page applications over single-page applications because it totally discounts the quote-unquote fast navigations that might occur when you transition between uh, the sing- the pages within a single-page application. They're wholly, th- these transitions are wholly invisible to Core Web Vitals currently. Correct me if I'm wrong, Annie. They are invisible, and I think that this is something that we're really, really interested in understanding a lot better, and this is uh, an area of work that Yoav is leading, so he'll be coming to talk about it next time. Yeah, that's Yoav Weiss, who was also yeah. a guest on our show a while back. So so yeah, another, another face that'll be great to see again. But all I can say, AJ, is that client-side rendering of the main content is really problematic because it means that you're not seeing any, the, that content until after the JavaScript is downloaded and executed. And compare that with referencing the main content directly in the HTML itself, which means that as soon as that part of the HTML arrives, the browser is able to immediately start downloading that resource and displaying it. So client-side is great for enriching and adding stuff around the the quote-unquote main content, which ideally should be preset in the page as it arrives from the server side. Now, whether it's rendered by WordPress 
or uh, or SSR via, let's say, Next.js, the browser could care less. So this is really best for content sites. I mean, like, you know, if you were creating the New York Times, this is the thing where you'd really want to be paying attention to this then. The core of vitals. Oh, so they do measure like the initial page load for single page apps. It's uh, it's just that we're not measuring those subsequent loads. So there's more we need to do. But I, I think that looking at these metrics is useful for all pages. It's just that it's a starting point. Uh, well, but it, it's yeah. particularly useful if you're developing content as, a, as opposed uh, to mean, an, an app. Well, I guess that makes sense anyway, because most apps, you're not search indexing because they're apps. Yeah, but, but I mean, if you want your app to load fast, the LCP metric still does measure that. Uh, there, there are a whole bunch yeah. of things here, factors here. For example, uh, there, there's the issue of intent, for example. So I'm the, the company that I currently work at, Next Insurance, we have our, our public website, which is like the landing page for people who are searching for insurance for their small businesses. So they have effectively very little intent because they they've not committed to us in any way they're just you know searching the web for relevant stuff versus our portal which is a web application intended for people who've already purchased insurance and want to, to do various operations or look at, at information about the insurance that they've already purchased and obviously they have very high intent because they've already paid us. I mean, you know, they're in a contract with us. They can't, they can't view this data anywhere else. They have to come to, to our portal. So Core Web Vitals are especially relevant for the public site because if you're not getting this information really quickly, you'll probably just bounce. In the portal, it might, you might be interested in other performance aspects. Like, obviously, you would want the portal to load as quickly as possible. I mean, why not make your users happy? But there's also the issue. But first of all, they will likely wait a little bit longer if they have to. They might grumble about it, but they'll wait. And you might want to maybe sacrifice a little bit of that loading time in order to make operations within that application faster and more efficient. If there's like this trade-off between them, because they'll probably spend a bunch of time within that web application and you want their experience to be nice overall. So they, you know, they might go and prepare some coffee while that uh, portal is loading, but then once they sit with their coffee cup in front of, of that web application, they want it to respond quickly to whatever operations they do within it. Um, so so, so it, it really gets fuzzy. I mean, that, that's the, one of the core issues that I think, Annie, that you had to tackle with core vitals. And, and I, I don't think it's perfect because I don't think it can be perfect, but I'm pretty amazed at how well you've been able to do it, which is to come up with a universal, generally applicable set of metrics that could be really used across a huge variety of websites. Now, like I said, it'll never be perfect. There are always scenarios where it might be less applicable, but overall, it's amazing how much you've been able to cover with these, with just three metrics. All right, I'm going to wrap us up here just because we still have to do picks and I want to make sure that we're mindful of everyone's time. But before we do that, Annie, if people want to connect with you online or if you know they have a whole bunch of questions that we didn't answer, is there a good place to connect with you or, or get those answers? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Annie Sully. That's A-N-N-I-E-S-U-L-L-I-E. Awesome. 
Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and do our picks and then we'll start wrapping up. Steve, do you want to start us off with picks? Oh, the best first. Okay, I got it. So... Actually, that, that's long... not a that's not a bad joke. I mean, a dad joke. No, it's not. That's why there was no rim shot. So, actual blog post here. Actually, sorry, not a news story. Uh, I thought this was sort of interesting. That uh, published two days ago, as of, or excuse me, yesterday, as of today, May twenty third, New York City is removing their last payphone from service. So, payphones are officially a thing of the past. And this is, and as I understand it, this is sort of the open air type phone as compared to the enclosed Superman type booth, but it's a CNBC article. I can put the link in the show notes for sure. And then to the high point of the podcast, the dad jokes of the week. The bad jokes. Dad, bad, it's all the same. So first of all, I was telling my, uh, when my son was younger, I tried telling him that it's perfectly fine, you know, to accidentally uh, poop your pants, but he's not buying it. In fact, he's still making fun of me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's rather stinky, I know. Secondly, question, what do you guess get when you cross an angry sheep with an angry cow? You get two animals in a bad mood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to subscribe to Steve on Twitter so you can get these uh, while they're hot. <laughs> while they're hot. Get them while they're hot. And then finally, you've all heard the statement, you are what you eat, right? Unfortunately, that really isn't true. For example, if you eat a vegan, you definitely are not a vegan. Thank you. And those are my dad jokes of the week or bad jokes, as Chuck would say. Those were better than anyway. Dan, what are your picks? Okay, Uh, no jokes for me. So the first pick that I'm that I have is actually Annie. I think that she's an awesome person to to follow. She's like the expert on all things core vitals and one of the leading experts on web performance in general. And I cannot believe that she only has 2,000 followers on Twitter when she absolutely should have like 10 times that at least. So... Well, 2001 now, I'll just follow her real quick. So so if you haven't followed Annie already, what's wrong with you? You, sh- you definitely should. And I think we should all be really grateful for the amazing work that Annie and her team has, has made with Core Vitals because I think that they've, you know, very few people can literally say that they've made the whole web a better place. And I think that you can say that. And that's an awesome achievement in my book. So, so, Thank you. so that, that would be my first pick. <laughs> oh, well, my, my dad jokes make the web a better place, but that's different, I guess. Okay. Kind of related to trying to make uh, the web a better place. Uh, my second pick is an article that's just been published on the register, which is titled Safari is crippling the mobile market and we never even noticed. 
that has to do with the Apple browser ban, which I think that I've mentioned on on previous picks as well. Uh, The fact that if you're using iOS, you think that you might be using your favorite browser, but actually it's Safari on the inside because everybody is forced to use WebKit as their browser engine. Now, WebKit is not a bad browser engine, but the fact that you're forced to use it is a problem, especially given that Apple refuses to implement certain APIs that are available in other browsers, like push notifications, which means that you cannot create a web application that runs on iOS and uses push notifications. Now, we may like push notifications or we may dislike them, but I think we can all agree that in certain cases, there are there is room for them. You might you know, want to get a push notification when you get a new email or something like that. And currently, that cannot be implemented as a web application that works on, on iOS, and that's a big problem. And I'm happy that everybody's kind of waking up to this, and case in point, that article on the register. And maybe the regulators will wake up as well and push Apple to, to do the right thing and allow other browser engines on uh, on iOS as well. And so that would be my second pick. And my third pick as always, but I'll make it short this time, is the ongoing war in Ukraine. I wish it would just end. I will keep on mentioning it until it does. And, uh, and those are my picks for today. Very cool. AJ, what are your picks? Well, there's this old 90s TV show called Pretender. Oh, and, so good. Yeah, my wife and I have been watching it. And it's we're into season two now. She watched it as a kid, apparently, and uh, I'd never even heard of it. But anyway, I think that that might be my my primary pick. And then, mm, you know, just the normal stuff. If you want to follow me on Twitter uh, with all of the nonsense, Cool Age eighty six. If you just want the tech stuff, that's underscore Beyond Code. And then I've got the live streams on uh, YouTube, Cool Age 86, and then the the useful bits that are clipped out are on the Beyond Code Bootcamp channel on YouTube. Nice. I'm going to throw out a few picks. So I'm going to, first off, I'm going to pick a game that I play with my kids. I don't know if I've picked it on here before, so if I have, I apologize for repeating. It's called Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. It's a card game, and the way you play it is you... Flip your card over and you, you know, in turn say taco, cat, goat as you flip them over, right? And if you're incorrect, you just keep going. But if you actually flipped over the thing you're saying, then everyone tries to slap the pile and the last person to slap it picks it up, right? Which in my house is usually the six-year-old. But she's a good sport and so it's fun. And then there are special cards. There's the narwhal and there is the uh, gorilla and the groundhog and you make a different motion for each of those. And the unicorn. No, it's the narwhal. Never mind. Not the unicorn. Anyway, you make a different motion for each of those before you slap the pile. And if you make the wrong motion, then you pick up the pile. If you if you go to slap the pile and realize that you're wrong, you have to pick up the pile for faking, right? So you can't try and fake anyone out. Uh, it's built into the rules. So you, if you're going for the pile, it's because you know you're you have to slap it. Otherwise, you're going to pick it up. And it's really fun. It's simple enough, like I said, for my six-year-old to play it. Sometimes we'll put a little bit of handicap on or not make her pick it up every time. But she's usually a good sport. So 
if we're just playing normal and we tell her that, then she's fine with winding up with the majority of the pile. And then the first person to go out and then be the first person to slap the pile with no cards in their pile in front of them is the winner, right? And so you stay in after you run out of cards trying to get that first slap. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. We've we've really, really enjoyed it. It takes about a half hour or so to play it. And it's, yeah, the illustrations are fun. The game is fun. So I'm going to pick that. Um, one other thing that I wanted to just shout out about, because I don't know if I acknowledge the hosts enough on the shows, but I was talking to somebody. I was wearing a, my JavaScript Jabber shirt, my yellow shirt yesterday to the carnival at my kid's school. And I had a guy look at me and go, he goes, where did you get a JavaScript Jabber shirt? Right. I'm at the school and I go through my life not with people not knowing who I am from this show. Right. I go to Walmart and I'm just another dude at Walmart. But occasionally while I'm out, somebody will see me in swag from the shows or something and they'll be listeners to the show. And this guy was a listener of JavaScript Jabber and his kids just happen to go to school at the same school that my kids go to. And so we start chatting and he starts telling me about how much of a difference the show has made for for him in his career. Right. And just we did a show about Ionic a few years ago and that inspired him to get into mobile development a little bit. And then he's doing a whole bunch of web stuff and he's picked up some other stuff from some of our other episodes. And anyway, and lest you believe that <laughs> I, I didn't take any credit for it. He didn't even know who I was once I told him I was one of the hosts. I had to tell him which host I was. But it was just terrific. And afterward he's just like, You guys are my heroes. And it just really occurred to me that we are making a difference here. And so what I want you all to do is if somebody on the show has talked about or shared something that makes a difference to you, I want you to tag them in a tweet or something or email them. Or if you email me, chuck at topendevs.com, I'll forward it on. But just let these guys know that what we're doing here makes a difference and that we've been able to help you out. Because I know not every episode is going to land in your lap like something that really matters to you, but I think we do hit the right notes for different people on different occasions. Well, that's for sure. One of the funniest tweets I ever got was somebody responding to somebody on on the JavaScript about JavaScript Jabber, and they mentioned, "Yeah, I like that funny guy and the other smart people." So that's uh, (laughs) so I'm funny but not smart. So I was going to say, which one of us is the funny guy? (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I, and recent, I'm, a, I'm a fun guy, you know, there's a fungus among us. And, and recently, another tweet, really, another tweet really made my day is somebody who tweeted that they listened to our show, uh, got a bit a piece of information, used that bit of information in an interview at Apple a few days later, and it helped them land the job. And that's like, you know, awesome. Like, I, I can't wish for anything better than that. That is awesome. Just keep in mind that they Apple won't let them come on any of our shows as guests until they move along to a different job. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, that is awesome. And Apple, from all the people that I've talked to that have worked there, is a terrific place to be. So uh, that makes me happy too. And I could tell other stories, you know, people that I've met at conferences and stuff, but I won't. I just know that, yeah, it, it feels good to be able to know that we're making a difference. So I just wanted to shout that out. Austin, if you're listening to this, We recorded this on the 24th of May, probably comes out sometime in June. So I'm talking about you anyway. But yeah, beyond those picks, I'm working on finalizing the sponsorship offerings and the conference schedule this week. And so if you go to topendevs.com slash sponsor or topendevs.com slash conferences, uh, you should be able to see when our conferences are. 
And then finally, one last thing, and this is an opportunity for pretty much anybody who listens to this show that works in Node on a regular basis. I've had a couple of sponsors reach out to me and say, we like sponsoring JavaScript Jabber, but we wish we that you had a Node-related podcast because that's that's the audience we're looking to reach. And I feel like it would be nice to kind of niche down in that area where we have shows on Angular, React, and Vue for the front end. So if you're interested in being a host on a Node show, email me, chuck at, at topendevs.com, and we'll see if we can figure that out. But I think it's an opportunity that's worth considering. So that's pretty much everything I have. Annie, do you have some things you want to shout out about? Uh, yeah, first uh, technical one, uh, if, if you all want to check out Jake Archibald's talk at Google I.O., bringing page transitions to the web. We're really excited about this new API and um, kind of how it intersects with single page apps and performance. So yeah. uh, check that out. From a non-technical perspective, hope this isn't too far out there, but my kids are really interested in making video games. So we've been trying to figure out how do you make the art for video games. And there's this cool mm-hmm. iPad app called Procreate. And oh, nice. uh, I found this channel called Art with Flow. Uh, so you get the, the iPad app and then you follow like the YouTube channel uh, art and it, it's just so much fun. You can make the coolest stuff and, and it's really easy and simple. So I think it's really neat. Cool. I'm going to give you a tip. So I, I'm i going to preface this by saying that I talk to Jason on a regular basis, but uh, Jason Wyman, he's, he's done some bonus episodes on here talking about game development. Uh, he has a bunch of courses on building uh, games. And lately, he went to the Game Developers Conference, and they actually like gave him some kind of code or discount code. I can't remember exactly what it was. But if you go to his YouTube channel, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'm pretty oh, sure awesome. that there's a discount code for the Unity Asset Store, I think is what it's called, where if you're nice. looking for artwork and you're not an artwork person, that you can find some options that will probably work for you. So I'll just drop that in there. And if you're looking for help on writing games, he's terrific on that stuff too. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, no problem. All right. I'm also going to put a link to his courses into the show notes because I know people are interested in it. I'll be completely transparent. It's an affiliate link, so I do get a kickback if you buy anything. But just buy it if you're interested in it. I'm not going to push. I'm not going to push it. His, His content's terrific. But anyway, but yeah, let's go ahead and wrap up. Thanks again for coming, Annie. Of course. Thanks for having like me. Like I said, we will have Annie again pretty soon. So uh, I'm really looking forward for that as well. All right, folks. Till next time, Max out. Bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.